Jeff Dyer is the author of Jeff in Venice, Death and Varanasi, and three previous novels, as well as nine nonfiction books. Dyer has won the Somerset Maugham Prize, the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction, a Lanon Literary Award, the International Center of Photography's 2006 Infinity Award for Writing on Photography, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters E.M. Forster Award. In 2009, he was named GQ's Writer of the Year. He won a National Book Critics Circle Award in 2012 and was a finalist in 1998. In 2015, he received a Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction. His books have been translated into 24 languages. He currently lives in Los Angeles, where he is writer-in-residence at the University of Southern California. Uh, yeah, so that's one thing that comes up a, a lot, or in a few of your books, is that you, a lot of the characters, or even the non-fiction books, you're writing about um, characters who don't know what to do, but you've really done a lot. So, I don't, it's a bit of a, I don't know how you find the time to do nothing anymore. Because I'm just looking, well I share that with you, um, sorry, I'm just looking, I, I share that with you, I don't have any kids either. But I mean, I don't know how many books you've written, I'm looking from the beginning, um, you know, John Berger, then The Color of Memory, but beautiful, that's that's just a lovely book. Um, and it just, it goes on and on, and they're all so different. Yeah, so I think there's about, I don't know, there's about 14 books now, and it's difficult to keep track, because the the two books of essays, they were reduced to, to, uh, to a one-volume edition in the States. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there are a, a, a lot of books. And as you, as you rightly say, they are, all, uh, they are all very different, not just in terms of um, uh, the subject matter, but in terms of form, you know, and that's something I feel quite pleased with, really. It's not like I've approached these different subjects, but... Um, imposed on the different subjects a uniform template, the form of each book has configured itself in a way that's appropriate uniquely, I hope, to the subject. Yeah, that's right, because when I was, um, uh, it, I, I think it's in the, the epi, epi, um, epitaph to, um, sorry, epigraph to um, But Beautiful, there you quote that we all just listen to ourselves, and it seems like you do the opposite of that. And yeah, just going into that, it's it's interesting because I think jazz music seems like a good fit for your voice. I'm wondering, do you ever use uh, a dictaphone, or how do you? What's your your process like? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've very occasionally sort of made notes in a sort of the only time. Actually, no, I don't really use a dictaphone. The only I didn't have one for many years, and the only time I really needed one was when I was at Heathrow Airport about to go on to the aircraft carrier where I knew I was going to doing really for the first time in ages some proper reporting and interviewing I bought uh, I bought one there and I was struck by the way that how much the technology of, uh, of kind of um, uh, dictaphones or di whatever you want to call them has, has improved and it was it was a great thing to do and I, I couldn't have done that book without it but in terms of dictating notes to myself I, I, I don't do that 
Mm-hmm. Well, you have you get, you get it anyway that has that quality. It seems like from hearing you speak, you has the quality of your your personality and your voice, and it's hard for people to do. But on the on, this is just an aside. But if you ever use the dictaphone. Um, I think that's probably an, an antiquated term, but if you ever use a, how you say a text to speech software, and mm. you can write uh, surrealist poetry that way because uh-huh. it it doesn't ever understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and I, uh, uh, yeah. So I've never, I've never, never used that, um, and um, yeah, no, no. So I've, I've never, never used that. But I take the point that yeah, this could be a great kind of instrument for generation of surrealist poetry uh, in the way that the autocorrect on um, on an iPad also can be. Yeah, anyway, we won't, we won't get into technology. But yeah, so talking about all uh, your different books, I'm just reading about your, your latest book, I, if you're finishing it now. Um, tell, tell us a, a little bit about that. Oh yes, so, I mean, this is a collect, it's, it's, I suppose it's a kind of, not a sequel to, but it's very like uh, yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it. I love that book. Oh, thank you. Uh, That was a collection of sort of, if you had to classify it as anything, it would be a kind of travel book. So this too is a collection of travel pieces, some of which have been published before. uh, But, you know, there's a piece in it about uh, about the time my wife and I tried to see the Northern Lights in... um, in, uh, in Svalbard, in the, in the Arctic Circle, and the, the original piece was only, I think, a thousand words, and this is this is kind of eight thousand words in the book. And then there's some new piece, pieces, but also what it, I, I've added these sort of linking passages, so it becomes uh, again, I think, a kind of really uh, a, kind of new, uh, a new kind of book, a book with its own with its own distinct form. So it has, although it's a collection of disparate pieces. It has a kind of overarching narrative to it, or, or, or so, I, so I think. And it was going to be called, I forget now exactly the title um, of that big Gauguin painting, you know, Where Do We Come From? Oh, Where yes, yes, I love that. Never. And then everyone said that was a silly title. And I could, even I couldn't remember what it was, but I kept insisting that that was going to be the title. And then at the last possible moment, I came to my senses, and now it's got... It's gone from having a very long title to a very short title. Now it's called White Sands, which is the title of one of the pieces in the, the book. And then the subtitle is Experiences from the Outside World. Uh, and the subtitle is derived from that uh, essay by D.H. Lawrence about New Mexico, where he said that New Mexico was the greatest experience from the outside world that he'd ever had. Ah, oh, yes. One, one of the important pieces in, that, in the book is, uh, is set in New Mexico. So that's... Uh, that's the explanation of what's... And all the pieces are, basically, they all take place outdoors. Mm-hmm. Well, White Sands, definitely, it can be tweeted easier. So... Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, have... I'm really, Sorry. Yeah, I'm really pleased that I've, I came to my senses. Well, I actually... Li- I, I actually... Well, I mean, the first time I encountered that painting of uh, Gauguin, I really liked the title. I mean, I liked... And I liked the otherwise known as the human condition. I think... Uh, yeah. I like titles that have questions in them, you know, um, or I mean, it's not a question otherwise known as a human condition, but it makes you think about the big themes. It's, it's you don't have to apologize for that, but maybe I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it just seems more. It just it seems more. Uh, it seems a more sensible title. Let's yeah. Say. Yeah. And then your book before that was is it uh, was it another great day at sea? Yeah. So I mean, again, well, I guess that's sort of similar. But then, a com- for me, uh, completely like a bizarre choice. You know, that's what I like about your books. You, you know, what's the next Jeff Dyer uh, book going to be? You, uh, uh, yeah. I would never guess. Oh, he's going to go on the USS uh, George H. W. Bush. You know, it doesn't. Yes, well, I should explain about that book. Unlike, in a, in a sense, that's. I mean, that it is a book by me, but it's it's less of a book by me than the others in mm-hmm. that. This was something that somebody suggested, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's part of a. It was written as originally as part of a series. There was a whole series of books. I think six of them were commissioned, mm-hmm. whereby writers could um, be in residence in some unusual place, 
and then as a result of arranging that residency as a way of singing for your supper, you would you would write a short book about the experience. But um, my book ended up twice as long as it as it needed to be. But uh, yeah, that was that was very much a sort of contractual job of work. Mm-hmm. And well, for me, the the yeah. writing of it it was by far the most boring book to write that I'd ever written because. Um, uh, all the other books involve me trying to find something out. You know, mm-hmm. the, the books are the record of a journey of some sort of exploration, whereas this, I'd had the experience, it was great, I knew exactly what I thought of it while I was having it. And so the writing of the book was just a, a, a sort of transcription of, of the already known. So it, mm-hmm. uh, it only became fun to write quite, quite late in the, in the process of, of composition. Yeah, it's harder to ha- well. I mean, it's in- it's an interesting choice, uh, and it's I think you know I think uh, you know those of us we who, we love your book. So, what for you is boring is interesting for us. But you you know your voice, so maybe it's like when I hear my voice on an answering machine. But um, no, but I think I understand what you mean. The jazz being able to find your own jazz is harder when it's too um, it's oh, it's a yeah. commission. Yeah. I mean, I guess. The- was as well that whereas the other books have been formally arriving at the form has been uh, a very interesting process for me. I mean, there's nothing interesting formally in that book. It's just, you know, it begins with me landing on the carrier and ends with me flying off from the carrier, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the only, yeah, I mean, but I, I don't, what I need, you know, the experience I had was amazing and absolutely great, but it was an experience that interesting that brings me to something else that I've noticed um well I'm thinking of out of sure rage I think you're talking about it and I, I see I'm thinking of the writers that you admire like uh Rilke Berger Lawrence they all seem to have you're talking about um they have their life their um how do you say they have a very individual voice but then also their life is is quite eventful. It's it's adventurous, and so even um, if um, another great day at sea wasn't for you the supreme experience of writing, but having that experience is I don't know. It seems important for me from all your books. It seems like some a message in that. Yeah, I guess in a way it was like the kind of thing when I've sometimes done straight down the line travel journalism. Mm-hmm. You have this wonderful experience, whatever it might be, you know, going on safari in some African country or, you know, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and then you just have to, and you just have to, uh, to write it up. Um, I would contrast it absolutely, say, with the piece about uh, Leptis Magna in the yoga book, where I was really oh, yeah. so trying to uh, articulate what it, why it is that uh, those Roman ruins still have a, still have a, great hold on us and I really I was quite I quite enjoyed the kind of the process of, um, of uh, going through the process of trying to analyze and understand my reactions to those to those ruins um, and of, you know and of course now that I mean I, I particularly think of those it's one of the striking things about going to places, you know, you can't, th- there was that brief window when I went, when, oh, wow, suddenly it's going to be possible to visit Leptis Magna, you know, the greatest Roman ruins on earth, I think. And it turns out that was that was a very, very brief window before, between the, um, you know, the Gaddafi regime and, um, uh, and and what's going, you know, now, of course, you really can't go to Libya for different reasons. Yeah, you have a very enviable life, and, and um, there was something else you were talking about, um, yes, all your books seem to, I mean, one of your books was literally called The Search, but they all do seem to be searching for, for something, and, uh, and I don't know, you, do you set out, you, you don't plot your books, really, I, I'm imagining? Uh, no, I don't plot them, uh, and I say that not with any particular pride, mm-hmm. but I don't plot them simply because I can't think of plots, all I can mm-hmm. do is think of a, um, in fiction, like a little situation, 
And in terms of my fiction, it's nearly always exactly the same situation, which we can uh, summarise in three word, words. Boy meets girl. Uh, and, that's, uh, and then that's about it, really. Beyond that, I, I can never think of uh, the kind of twists and turns of plot and story that you get in, uh, you know, in, in the, the films typically uh, rely on. No, all I have is a, is a yeah, a, say a situation or a, a situation or perhaps just a place, really. Mm -hmm. Well, no, but that's nice because what happens, the plotting, it seems to happen in the dialogue. Um, and and that way, you're, as you say, you're not imposing your voice uh, upon natural situations. You can plot this artificial. And I, that's why I'm wondering, because uh, we're talking about jazz, and uh, the d dialogue is very strong in your stories, fiction and nonfiction, and your characters are very lively. I was wondering if you ever had been tempted to write for the theatre. Uh, absolutely not. I had this stupid but not uncommon prejudice against the theatre, and in my 20s and 30s it was a source of, I, I realise now, rather stupid pride that I never went to the theatre. Um, but actually I kind of struggle with, with dialogue. Uh, anyway, I've had no urge to write either for the theatre, and certainly I've absolutely got, even though I live in Los Angeles now, I've got no urge to write for you know, I, I, however much I love cinema and film, I've got no urge to write for, uh, for, for the, to get involved in, in the movies. Uh, absolutely no, no desire at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of the dialogue, though, I mean, one thing I would say uh, is that, I mean, what I've loved, I mean, it's really striking, I think, when you, you know, if you think of those screwball comedies of the 1930s. Yeah. And I just love the kind of dialogue between men and women that you get in that in, in those films, and it always seems so far sort of ahead of its time in a way. In that, uh, you know, the women are always taking the lead, and they're so yeah. I just love that kind of uh, yeah. I just love the kind of um, yeah. I, I just love that dialogue that you get in, in Screwball. It's possible. Yeah, it's they they were clever. They were playing and they were punning. Um, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, the way we've devolved, there have been a few things, there have even been things on television, like I was a fan of Frasier, I don't know if you ever saw that, but... Yeah, sure. Yeah, and it was very intelligent, but yeah, it's hard to find that it's it's minimum, what it becomes is just pure plot, or even not even plot, just like pure image. I'm, I'm wondering now, I don't know how many years you've been in Los Angeles. Um, Only two. Okay, so how do you find the Americans take to the British sense of humour? Like it when you take the piss. I mean, you've visited it in a, in a few books now. Um, what what about it? Um, oh, wow. I mean, God, I love it. I mean, I lo love so much about being in America. I mean, it's the 
So I'm in Los Angeles, not a city I've ever liked visiting, you know, not a city I've ever liked when I visited, but I'm in California, which is where I've always dreamed of being because it's always seemed to me like the sort of an outpost, you know, the frontier of progress and stuff. Mm. I like that. I love, I love the landscape of the American Southwest, and I think I love that because it's so the opposite of, of Britain. So now we've got this thing, you know, we can get into our car, we can, we're, we, this weekend we're going to Joshua Tree, a bit further afield, oh, yeah. we can go to Death Valley, you know, the whole of the mm-hmm. Southwest is, you know, with, within reach, and that's, that's just amazing to me. Mm. And then on a day-to-day basis, I mean, you know, something that I just love more and more is just the incredible politeness and good manners of, a, of, a, of America generally. And of course, it's, you know, some, people, some places are famously polite and well-mannered, like the Midwest, but also here in Los Angeles, Southern California, it's, that's, a, a, that's a constant source of joy to me. Just, mm-hmm. it's, I've become so much more polite mm-hmm. since, since, uh, since, since living here. Oh, I don't believe that. I think you're oh, polite. No, it really is. It's absolutely true. We've really had to raise our game. I mean, and it's, it's, I just love it. Um, mm-hmm. And there's loads of other stuff as well. I mean, obviously here in L.A., I love the, the weather, I love the food. All, you mm-hmm. know, so, yeah, it's, um, there's lots of stuff I, I really like about it. So you'll be writing um, Jeff in Venice Beach soon? <laughs> well, there's two chapters in the new book which are very much about... Uh, our time in LA. There's a chapter about the Watts Towers, mm-hmm. and there's another chapter about uh, Adorno's being, uh, you know, str- uh, it sort of somewhat improbably, uh, you know, uh, living in um, in LA during during the, the Second World War. All right. Yeah, it's funny because it has drawn a lot of intellectuals, and yeah, after the Second World War, it's because um, you know I have families on both coasts, San Francisco and New York, and. Uh, Yes, in the in the East Coast, you think of L.A. or you're raised to think of L.A. as, um, you know, um, anti-intellectual. But in fact, the number of uh, really talented, imaginative people who are drawn there is um, is surprising, I think, for a lot of people from the East Coast. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, what it doesn't have, it doesn't have that, you know, that, that kind of thing of New York. It's so palpable, that thing, the power of the life of the mind. You know, there's that incredible concentration of writers, and it's kind of you know, such a capital of publishing. I mean, you know, I don't think anything could seriously uh, displace New York. And then, you know, the, all these people involved in the movies here—they're all fantastically clever. I mean, the, um, the, the cleverness is used often to a, to, a, to rather different ends than, mm-hmm. than it is in the in the East Coast. But yeah, there's no there's no disputing the, the fact there's a ton of really really brainy people here uh, and at the same time there's a there's a kind of there's a there's, there's certainly a rather moronic aspect to the culture here you know sure it has both well high and low is always interesting and i i think good for satra as well so i'm just thinking um so t- tomorrow is Armistice Day. Sorry, I just keep on changing track. I'm following your your mode of digression. So um, tomorrow is Armistice Day. So I'm thinking of your book, The, the Missing of the Song. Yeah. Uh, so it's almost 99 uh, years have passed, I think, since the Battle of the Song. So could you tell, because the tone, I thought that was book was beautiful, and I, I guess a little bit like, but beautiful, but you know, the tone was very different from your other books, serious, and um, I don't know if you could just talk a, a little bit about that. I, w- I found that very touching. Yeah, sure. I certainly could. Um, but one thing I would dispute, I mean, it's, uh, it's also very, very funny, like all my books, and a couple of reviews when the book came out complained about all those passages where it's my friends and I just joking around in these mm-hmm. uh, in the cemeteries mm-hmm. but you know that oh I don't mean it's not funny but I don't know I'm just thinking because you you think about your your grandfather and well the subject yeah. matter yeah sure yeah and that's something I'm absolutely adamant about you know and I can't it's David Sedaris I think he says you know the opposite of uh, the opposite of uh, funny not serious. The opposite of funny is not funny. So it's entirely so seriousness and funniness are entirely possible. Anyway, uh, so yeah, it just it was. Uh, I went. To, I was living in Paris, and uh, where I was intending to write a version of 
tender is the night. And, uh, you know, so I was there to write a novel, and then I went to these cemeteries on the Western Front, you know, because I'd always been curious about them, and because Dick Diver in uh, Tender is the Night visits the cemeteries in in a famous passage. And then it was one of the, you know, one of the most momentous days of my life when I came to this big, you know, the big memorial designed by Sir Edwin Lutyens to the missing of the song. And, you know, I... As always happens for me with books, it was a series of, first of all, a question, wow, you know, what what drew me here to this place? And then to answer that question, I have to answer and ask another one, you know, what baggage did I bring with me, cultural, historical, autobiographical, familial, all this kind of stuff? So that was a a kind of entirely representative book by me in that the book is uh, a physical journey. I go, it's about going to that place, but it's also a epistemological journey in that it's seeking to, um, you know, to answer some kind of questions. And I think more than any other book, it really defined for me something that has been so important. You know, it made me recognize that where uh, many of the sort of things I'm interested in, it's this thing where the, you know, where history is manifest in geography or where uh, the, the, the temporal time is manifested in the spatial, and you get that so much there. You come to this place, Tietval, and then what's what's kind of uh, memorialized there is this, you know, event in history. And I realize that very often for me it's that, that coming together of place and time, you know, a particular spot of time in a particular geographical spot. Uh, so that, that, that sense of convergence is, is, is something that I realized I've um, after writing that, I, I recognise that same feeling in many different uh, places and ways. And it was a, another important sort of milestone book for me in that it really, uh, it you know, it really did generate generate its own form. And um, yeah, yeah, it was a yeah, it was an important little little book for me. Oh well, no, it was beautiful, and and it did. It, it sorry, excuse me. It did what you've done, and not in the form, but I mean, what you seem to do in some of your other books is that you take these stories, whether it's talking about Wilford Owen or D.H. Lawrence, uh, jazz legends, and you make their stories very personal, almost as though they were members of your family or or yourself, and. Um, and that, that makes it so much more believable than a, a block of dead history. It's like living earth, like what you're what you're saying. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, the the comparison that you make between uh, you mentioned the Lawrence book as well, and the thing about both those two projects is that you know there's a load of books written about D. H. Lawrence. There's a load of books written about the First World War. So what that did, that sort of freed me from having to do lots of the donkey work in my books. I didn't have to bother with all the kind of stuff that I find boring to write and that readers can get in other books. So it freed me in both cases just to do the more kind of speculative uh, uh, kind of stuff, you know, because you know nobody would nobody would read my book if they just wanted a history of the First World War. It meant, yeah, I could just concentrate on this, this more kind of personal, um, you know, reflections on what the war meant to me, always confident that by articulating what the war meant for me, for somebody from my particular background, in my particular set of circumstances, that, you know, that that would have some kind of resonance and meaning for people whose circumstances were, were, were very different uh, to mine. But the condition but that was only on condition that I remained absolutely faithful to the to the uh, you know peculiarities of my own circumstances and the vagaries of my own nature. Yeah, that was interesting too, and out of sheer rage because I you you made um, you wrote that you know you wanted to stop. Well, then you said that you went on and re- read all his letters, but you wanted to stop reading his letters at the point that your curiosity was sated, so that you could go. Uh. And uh, I thought that was very interesting because some people are uh, neurotic about doing as much research. And I like that approach because then we, uh, you, your uh, curiosity infects us readers. Yeah, I think the crucial thing in terms of the process is that the 
classic way of doing a PhD is that you do all the reading, you do all the research, and then you begin the writing. Whereas for me, I was doing them both simultaneously because, um, you know, the, the, the important thing is that the book contains some of the excitement of discovery, whereas, you know, typically I think you only begin writing your PhD when you've arrived at the kind of... Uh, uh, you start writing it when you've got all the knowledge. I mean, it's a comment I've made before, but I like to feel that at the exact moment of finishing a book, I've arrived at the kind of state I needed, I really should should have been in at the beginning. You know, I've acquired the authority and knowledge that I needed to begin writing it, but for me, that only happens right at the end. It's very, well, for me it's Buddhist, but uh, yeah. <laughs> We don't want to hold too much. No, I, I like that. And then it's uh, what seems in some of your books, you have these parallel stories going on. So um, I think it was, was it in Paris trance. I think it's in Paris trance. I think it, how it begins, you're talking about, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing about it's Luke and Alex and I'm mixing up their names, but, um, and I'm writing his story, but I'm writing really my own story. I, have, have I got the book right? Have I have I quoted? Have I misquoted yeah, that's that? Absolutely what, that's absolutely what, uh, what's going on in that book. Yeah. yeah, and then it seems then when um, the missing of the Somme, and also in out of sheer rage, and you out of sheer rage, you take a long time to actually bring up um, Lawrence. You mention Lawrence, but you don't go deep into it, and then you bring uh, elements of your own. Um, you have your family, you talk about your father, I think you might mention your grandfather a bit. Yeah. And then you realize, well, actually you are writing about Lawrence because there are certain um, elements in common. Yeah, that's right. You know, Lawrence mm. lent himself, uh, you know, the, the book arrived at the style and form it did. Not because I had, that was how I was always going to do it, but because it was a singularly appropriate uh, response and style that was, you know, style and form that was particularly appropriate to, to Lawrence, I think. Sure. I like, um, let's see, um, I'm thinking now. And then in that book, I, I you know, I, I'll get uh, stuck in uh, to, to talking too long about any one book, but I was fascinated by that. Then you talked also about, you know, as time passes, the more uh, we know, the more uh, celebrated an author is, the more we're fascinated in the minutiae of their life and their manuscripts yeah. and their toenail clippings, whatever. And um, <laughs> But I don't know, you, you've sort of realized this, or I don't know if this is conscious choice or it's just your writing voice, that you realize you put in all of this intimate minutiae and big ideas too, but a lot of the, the daily things. So now you've saved your um, future biographers or museum curators along the, a lot of work down the line. We, we, know, we, we know how to build the dire museum in the future, I think, I'm just saying. Uh, yes, except that it's not always true that the, 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 you know, the, the toenail clippings that you're getting... Oh, I don't mean toenail. Really, not necessarily <laughs> real toenails, you know. It's okay. all a very much a, a sort of construct and so uh, there is I mean uh, you know in a way I sometimes think that it's when the, the divergences from what really happened are quite small that the, uh, the, the, the that it calls for the, the services of a very uh, a very scrupulous and clever clever biographer so yeah I don't it's you know it's certainly not the stuff that you get in my books about me it's not uh, it's not how can one put it? It's not. Uh, it's not uh, reliable as evidence in any court of law, and I'm very conscious that I'm not under oath when I'm writing these things. <laughs> you mean okay? Yeah, because you said something like that in yoga for people who can't be bothered, yeah, and I no, and I yeah. I wondered sometimes because. Yes, in your earlier books, and uh, there's a lot of I know there's stretching of the truth. There's a bit of mischief. What I mean is. Characters in those some of those books spend a lot of time getting high. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I can edit this out anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> so maybe you're exaggerating a bit, but uh, the, you know, it's all about livening the text and everything. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's the, the crucial thing is just really that you can't. Yeah, for me, the, the crucial thing is that you can't tell where the joins are. You can't mm -hmm. tell where it's stopped being reliable as evidence. Uh, you know, and become and become in, in invented. Mm -hmm. so, 
Well, that's nice because it gives this quality of a dream again in but beautiful or in well that's more literal in in zona there's this there's this dreamlike quality so i was wondering what also uh, um drew you to to zona as or sorry what drew you to stalker but to write zona um what about yeah, well that's a, that's a that's a the answer to that question is the book really i mean mm -hmm. the book entire the book really does provide that, that's exactly what the book does. It explains what it, it was about that film mm -hmm. that uh, drew me to it. I know, but I'm speaking to the third wall now, in case for people who haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um. so what that, you know, I, this, book, this film had been so important to me for so long, and I found that, uh, weirdly, the more times I saw it, and the, the, you know, the, the, the greater the period of time it was sort of part of me, the more, the more deeply moved I became. Yeah, of course. If you put things too far high up on a pedestal or stage, it's not, um, you know, to understand it, you have to take it apart. You have to, you know, that's a cliche. You have to wring the neck of the dove in order to paint it. Or you, yeah. you know, with, or not just that, you have to tickle its belly. I don't know. But yeah, you have to see it from, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, 
my my sense of um, uh, understanding the film continues to con continues to grow. Hi, I'm Dan O'Nissen. I'm a recent graduate of UC Berkeley. I usually don't care for it when writers and in interviews rattle off their influences. I do, however, love it, absolutely love it, when they go into a work of art that fascinates them, haunts them, enchants them, and confuses them. I think there's a distinction between the former and the latter. With the former, you know, they want to write like their influences. But with the latter, it's like a UFO's tractor beam. It pulls them in, it's completely insurmountable, and no one knows where it came from. They can't replicate it. I get the sense that Dyer feels this way about Tarkovsky's Stalker. I share some of his affection for this movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Especially the scene, you know, the famous one with the sand dunes. That certainly has the UFO tractor beam effect on me. I think Stalker is the Dyer as There Will Be Blood is to me. My writing or way I approach any sort of creative outlet in no way resembles the movie. I write and generally carry myself with brisk humor, not at all calling to mind a gruff oil tycoon from a hundred years ago. I don't even know if I'd cite the movie as an influence per se, but it certainly is sucking me up into space. I can't stop it, and I have no clue why I'm lifted 50 feet above the ground. It's an enormously important movie to me. In 2008, my family had just switched from blockbuster runs to a Netflix subscription. Different times indeed. I was 12. My mom had just lifted her R-rated movie ban, and I wanted to watch all the adult movies nominated for Best Picture the year before. Little Miss Sunshine, Michael Clayton, No Country for Old Men, and of course, There'll Be Blood. They all arrived as DVDs in the mail. I watched the movie and felt, I'm sure, the same as when Dyer first watched Stalker. I love the mismatch. There's no obvious connection between Dyer and Tarkovsky. I would have been bored if he had mentioned a more logical precursor. It would be like hearing Oasis talk about the Beatles or Charles Bukowski talk about Ernest Hemingway. Who cares? I really appreciate that Dyer, like myself, had been taken along on a UFO ride and can't get down. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I'm think I'm thinking of some of your other books too. You're inspired by film, music, uh, photography, and the ongoing moment. It seems you still you have this sense of wonder about other mediums. They're 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 inspiring to you. Yeah, um, inspiring. I don't know about this. That's the but I, I certainly I'm very very interested in uh, in photography. I love looking at photographs. And um, yeah, I think one of the things is I've been much more interested in, uh, you know, somebody was saying the other day that I haven't written many reviews, don't do so much criticism anymore. And I realize that's sort of true, but they're interpreting criticism in a very narrow way, meaning literary criticism. And it's true, I haven't written so much about writing and books in the last couple of years, but I have written an enormous amount about photography. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, it's because I think in a way I feel I know pretty much, you know, I know quite a lot about literature now, whereas I've continued to enjoy finding out about this new area of, of photography that's been really so enriching for me. I guess, yeah, and an and image creates that enigma that, as you say, you can your curiosity can latch onto it. Another story, it's uh, not complete, but it's, yeah, it's a domain you know very well. Yeah, I like that when you are talking about, well, you had great portraits of uh, Chet Baker, uh, Duke Ellington, and you said something about, and it made me think of you because, I, as you said, it's like you're writing, you're putting up a mirror to yourself when you're writing about this other artist too. 
and there's something about um, everything he encountered found his way into his music and so I thought of course about your writing. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I say about Ellington. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised because I don't know their biographies. I've I've actually done a I did a big portrait for the Guinness Jazz Festival of these uh, jazz, many of the jazz musicians that you um, that you wrote about, but I didn't know their life stories. Uh, yeah, it's one. I mean, back, back when I wrote the book in the late nineteen eighties or and early nineties, there wasn't so much stuff available, but so many biographies have come out about those figures now. That so, for example. Um, Thelonious Monk. I mean, really, there were, there were lots of anecdotes about him, and there was, uh, you know, that great film by Charlotte Zwerin. Mm. But uh, you know, uh, the the great Robin Kelly biography had not been, you know, it was only published, I think, four or five years ago. So uh, a, a lot more biographical material is available now, both in print and on the internet, than was the case back back when I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. But it's it, even without knowing all the biographical detail, it seems that you've got you've imagined yourself into their lives. I mean, whether the facts are true or, but I felt a real sense. Uh, I can't think that I've really read a lot of books about um, music that made me hear music, made me see music. You know that I I felt it. And I, I just, it was like a poem. The whole thing was like a poem, so. Yeah, thank you. That was the, that was the idea, really, because, you know, I was so interested in these uh, musicians and the music they made, but because I had no technical understanding of or ability to write about music in musical terms, the only way I could do it was to invent these scenes. And, uh, you know, I really, it seems that, that, that people did really respond to that. And also, it's, it's a source of... There's a bit in the new book where I talk about the way that, you know, um, I've become very interested in the music of Albert Eiler lately, mm -hmm. and I thought I'd try to like to try to write something about Albert Eiler, you know, pretty much in the style of But Beautiful. And so I, when we were living in Williamsburg, we I took the uh, the East River ferry, and this is all in the new book, and mm -hmm. you know, hoping I could maybe write something, and then just you know, it's just gone. I can't that stuff which I was able to do really quite easily in my early 30s um, in But Beautiful back in 1989, 1990. It's just gone now. I just can't, can't do it. And, you know, I sort, of, I sort of regret now that I didn't include a chapter about Albert Eiler back then when I was capable of, capable of writing it. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sure you could. I think you've just... Uh, I'm, sh I'm sure I couldn't. I really did. The number of hours I spent with my notebook and my and my Walkman with um, Albert Eiler tracks playing in my head and just couldn't just couldn't summon up his spirit the way I was very easily able to summon up the the, the spirit of uh, of these other jazz musicians. But, you know, it's, it's part of the thing with the writing life when you do it over a long period of time. Yeah. You realise that uh, you know you gain certain things, but oh my God, you you lose them. You lose them along other things along the way too. But you have to remember, because maybe I've read But Beautiful more recently than you, and uh, I think I can remember where you're talking about Duke Ellington, or maybe it was another musician then, but uh, you said that he got his best songs, they just came to him on a deadline. So maybe you can play with that. <laughs> well, uh, that's encouraging, but I, I personally think it's, I, I fear I've, I've missed that. Oh, no, it's never, no, because things, uh, you know, I'm thinking of visual artists, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, Degas, but sometimes they, even when they think that they're, you think, oh, they were losing their capacity, their eyesight is diminishing, and some of their greatest stuff comes out of that. Uh, even the impairment is interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, uh, these are questions that interest me very uh, very much, um, you know. There is a particular, there is a particular time when certain books can be written, and it's very important to realise, uh, you know, what the time. You know, you, it's good if you if you write a book at a certain time, and other times you can realise, you know, you really do, uh, you really can see. Oh yeah, you know, I, sh you know, I, I should have done that back then. Anyway, 
Okay, we won't we won't say that. Yeah, tell me more. Uh, tell me more about White Sands. Anyway, I'll try to uh, place a piece in the Chicago Tribune or maybe one of the English papers too. They'll they'll take things when they're uh, it's about the latest book. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to ask because I know you mentioned you, there's a chapter about you going to Beijing with a tour guide who's not a tour guide. I don't know. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a story that was published in slightly different form in, um, in the Harper's magazine. So I should... Um, where are you based these days? I'm in Paris, so... Okay, so uh, yeah, one I'll of your hometowns. Oh, okay. Uh, well, excellent. Yeah, let me know. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a bit of a, a ways away, anyway. So, uh, I've just got proofs of the American edition, actually. So uh, that's coming out in May in America. So. Okay, Ex excellent. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm eager to. I really, if it's like yoga for people who can't be bothered, I I really like that. I mean, you've just you've just hit on this voice. I, how can I say? It's I feel like when I read one of your books. Uh, it's like uh, meeting up with a friend that you know haven't seen in a while. Oh, nice. Yeah, and when and you know you talk about everything and nothing, and the end of it, I'm not even sure what exactly was said, but I have this great feeling, and we had a good time, and that's what it, that, I, I like that quality of your books. Great. Well, send e if you email me your address, I'll get them to send you a, a proof copy of the book quite soon. Okay, good. E excellent. Um, I'm I need to get going. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, you've, give, you've given me... Um, uh, this This is great. What I was, I've just asked while you're on the phone is that there's three other little questions that the American Writers Museum, it's for another part of their exhibit. But that can be, it's just like favorite writers and that kind of thing. If you want to respond to them now or later. Sure, okay. So which one or two American books or plays would you yourself recommend to foreign leaders? To foreign leaders? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, the Names by Don DeLillo. Uh-huh. And, um, geez, let me think. Um, maybe, oh, uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. Okay. All right. And um, who in your childhood, for example, parent or teacher, encouraged you to read books, and which one or two books do you remember most fondly? Yeah, so um, it was very much my teacher at grammar school, whose name was Bob, B-O-B-B-O-B-E-A-L-E. Mm -hmm. And he really, I mean, the, when we were studying English, there was Shakespeare's Richard III. That was a huge, that was the first Shakespeare play I read and studied. And also, very importantly, he got me reading um, uh, uh, the, the Great Gatsby by Scott Fitzgerald. Great. And um, which books by writers of the other G8 countries um, are important? Have been most important to you as a writer? Um, uh, Camus hugely important for me. I mean, really, I did that whole trip to Algiers just to sort of have a sense of kinship with Camus. Um, then uh, I think uh, Adorno has been really important to me. Uh, Roland Barthes, very, very important. Yeah. Um, and most recently, I mean, I, can I include an English writer? Oh, of course, of course. Oh, yeah, uh, Rebecca West, I think. Okay. Rebecca West and John Berger have both been very, very important to yeah. me. And you don't want to mention D.H. Lawrence? Oh, yeah, I forgot about D.H. Lawrence. Oh, and I also forgot Neat. Oh yes. Okay. What about is is Russia one of the G eight countries? I'm guessing it's not. Um no it is, yeah. Oh okay, then Joseph Brodsky. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll send this transcript to you as soon as I can because of I'm working on the portraits as well. Um and then if you want to add anything, there was one thing I didn't ask you about. I, no, I didn't ask about family. Well, we talked about family, but not so much about your parents. So if you wanted to add anything about that, it's kind of nice oh, for uh, people. Just ask me now, real quick. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I was just reading about your background and, and I guess ab about your um, your father. I think, um, you know, I was just interested in how, how you came to books because I guess your father was a sheet metal worker and you're... And and you just that if you could speak a little bit about growing up and how you found literature. Oh yeah, so the thing is, I was there was me, my mum and dad, 
just the three of us, an only child. So, um, you know, uh, and it was a house entirely without books. But because it was just the three of us, I had lots of spare time. So there was a real sort of book-shaped book-shaped gap in the life. So when in the, whatever year it was at school, when I was at grammar school, when my um, uh, teacher, this guy Bob Beale, got me into reading, then it was great because I had all this sort of spare time and psychological space that was maybe wouldn't have been available if I'd been part of a family of, you know, much bigger family with loads of brothers and sisters all with all of us sort of squabbling and, you know, running riot the whole time. Uh, so, yeah, it, it sort of was something that came later in life than it does with some people. And it was just a, it was the classic, you know, it's a really, I mean, the reason I talk, talk about it quite a lot is because, precisely because it's something that's not at all unique to me. Uh, you know, this teacher turned me on to, to reading, and as a result of that, my whole life took on a direction that it might, you know, it really wouldn't otherwise have had. And what it meant was that at quite an early age, you know, when I was about 18 or 19, let's say, my understanding of the world was so much in advance of or more developed than my circumstantial or social uh, skills were because, I, I, you know, I, I'd, led, I'd led a rather sheltered and limited life, but, you know, but I had read Middlemarch and all these other things which, you know, greatly extend one's grasp of psychology and stuff. And then as I got older, the gap between, as my social experience, you know, enlarged, particularly after I, after I went to Oxford, then uh, the gap between those diminished. But, uh, yeah, the, the experience of reading was really, you know, it, it was really, it was so far ahead of my circumstances, I think. Yeah, it's you no, know, it's wonderful what books can do. Uh, and I'm sad to see, you know, we're menaced by the screen and everything. But, uh, uh, yeah. uh, but it is. Way, even, even though you know, you, there's the screen, you know, it doesn't really matter whether books are being read mm -hmm. on the screen or on the page. You know, mm -hmm. It's not like the, you know, as long as the content is being made, made available. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, so that was it. And then, the, the, you know, the, yeah, so that, and with, with that falling in love with books and reading, what I didn't understand is that there was more to that process than just reading or just education. I didn't realize quite how, how enormous the social ramifications, I didn't realize the extent to which the, 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 it would be life-changing in a circumstantial way as, as well. And this is something that I'm, of course, again, in a way that's entirely typical. I'm so much, so conscious of it now, now that my parents are dead. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's been lovely talking to you again, and I just want to say, I mean, I'll, I know you have to probably shoot off now. Um, I'm going to be working on a portrait. If you have any photograph that you prefer that's sort of copyright-free, I could use it as an inspiration. If not, I use videos, or I try to use, like, a copyright-free image. Um, okay, just have a look. There's loads yeah. of stuff. There's sure. images on my website, and okay. there's also there's so many pictures of me on the internet. Okay. I think it's not, I just sometimes they have the copyright, but I think I change things a lot. In fact, I've already done a portrait of you, but I want to work on it um, some more. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, and then um, maybe if you want, I, this is just something I started asking, if you want to send a signature so that it could be at the end of the interview, if you, if you like, that could be kind of personalize it. Um, and then there were, I have access to some of the recordings, the recording at Shakespeare and Company, and you also said some interesting things there, so I might adapt some of that as well, because I tried to make it quite, it was very interesting, so, so I like that. Um, well, thank you very much for your time, it's been a real pleasure, and, um, and you know, when you come to Paris again, or if I'm in uh, Los Angeles, uh, it would be great to, you know, see you again. Okay. okay, thank you. Okay, bye then. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dan O'Nissen. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, 
You can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.